0: Well, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles today to the book of James, the book of James, New Testament. While you're turning there, I'll tell you James is is listed among the general epistles, sometimes called the Catholic epistles. It it doesn't mean they're the Roman Catholic epistles, it's just Catholic being used in the terms of universal or general epistles. James, chapter 1, verse 1, right after the book of Hebrews. In our Christian culture today, worldwide, we seem to have drifted toward one of two extremes. One extreme promotes the application of a biblical ethic without stressing the principles that are foundational to that ethic. This extreme encourages authentic Christian living without at the same time encouraging intense Bible study so that the rationale for such living may be validated. Like the Apostle Paul's Jewish countrymen, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Another extreme, on the opposite end of the pole, promotes the study of the Bible absent an intentioned exhortation to apply daily the principles that have been learned. This position often descends into treating the study of the scriptures as strictly an academic subject or an academic exercise without a commitment to live out the principles that have been learned, two extremes. In my experience, those participating in the first extreme are in the majority today by a wide margin. It's not even close. I've personally seen this. Personally, I have witnessed this to be the case in Western Europe, in Eastern Europe, Central Asia, in India, in South America, in Southern Africa, and of course in the United States, especially in the United States. In fact, superficial Christianity may very well be the product that we export to the rest of the world more than any other. And that's a sad state. Many have written on the subject, but none more eloquently than Oz Guinness in his fine little text, Prophetic Untimeliness, in which he said, Evangelicals were once known as a serious people. It's sad to note today that many evangelicals are among the most superficial of religious believers. Lightweight in thinking, gossamer thin in theology, and avid proponents of spirituality light in terms of preaching and responses to life. What started out as breathless and excited is ending as exhausted and out of breath. One respected expositor recently put it this way, Christianity today is a mile wide and an inch deep. While we're certainly grateful for the mile wide The inch deep aspect is something about which many contemporary pastors should be embarrassed. A big part of the problem is that the church has adopted, in many ways, the world's standards for success. I can't tell you how many times I have heard the rationale, look at how many people are going there, they must be doing something right. Well, not necessarily. And by saying this, I'm not trying to excuse blame for blame is due. But pastors are often subject to terminations, to termination from their position if their congregations do not grow at the pace that their board expects. And then in turn, that expectation comes from observation of other churches with the same set of standards. I know of two examples. I won't give you the names of either one because you would know their names. The first example comes from a man who is one of the most well-known expositors of our day. And in many circles, he's considered to be perhaps one of the finest expositors of the last part of the 20th century. I spoke to him personally and asked him one time, I said, I can't, I won't say his name, but I said, I I just have to ask you something. I I heard something about you and I just can't believe it. So I would like to ask you if you don't mind me doing so." And he said, of course. Whatever you want, Bruce, ask me anything. And so I said to this particular very well-known theologian, I said, I had heard that way back in the late 60s, you were actually asked to leave your church by the board there. And he said, actually, that's true. Actually, I almost fell out of my chair when he said that. But he said, no, that's true. I said, why? I I patterned my ministry after this fellow. I I listened to his tapes occasionally just just for structure's sake. He's an incredible expositor, author of many, many, many books. I said, why would they ask you to leave? You know what he said? You know what he told me? He said, my board decided that our church wasn't growing fast enough. So they asked me to step down. I know another illustration here in our own city of Houston, a man who was considered one of the finest biblical expositors in our city, ministered at the same church for over 30 years. And after 30 years, he personally told me, this is not secondhand, he personally told me that he was asked to step down by the board because the board did not feel that that church was keeping up with the growth of a church that was nearby. We've become in this way, like mice in a cage, running in one of those circular treadmills. We're doing a lot of running, but we're not getting very far with that. We have adopted the world's standards. We've brought them into the church, and we're measuring success in the wrong way. So while I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, laying all the blame on the pastors, I don't want to give them a free ride either. But the blame can be spread out. Why in the world are we gossamer thin in our theology? Spiritually light, spirituality light, as Os Guinness put it. It's because we've, in a large way, and that's an editorial we, we have shifted as a church over to this first option. This option of wanting to apply love without knowing Jesus Christ in the way we should know. Now, I'm not talking about in a salvific way. Of course these folks know Jesus Christ as their Savior. But they're trying to love someone that they really don't know. And when you do that, what happens? You have to insert your own information about Jesus in there, and then you end up worshiping something other than the Jesus of the Bible. And that's a problem. That's a huge problem. But the book of James, having said all that, the book of James was not written to individuals who find themselves in that first extreme. You might ask yourself at this point, then what's he doing? (laughs) If I just said that's that's the extreme that most people fall into, uh, why in the world are we going to study a book that's dedicated to those who know the word but consistently fail to practice it? Well, here's the reason. Because as a church, and I'm not talking about individually, but as a church, we're not in danger of falling into the first extreme. It's been... My philosophy and our philosophy from the very beginning, from the day we planted this church, to be a church that emphasizes the teaching of the Word of God. Solid biblical instruction is a priority for us. It always has been, and as long as I have anything to say about it, it always will be. That's a priority for us. So falling into the first extreme, as long as I have something to do with it, is not going to be an option for us as a church Over the last 14 years, you've been presented the Word of God by some of the most respected authorities in the field of systematic theology, Old Testament study, New Testament study, and apologetics. Men like Robert Leitner, Norm Geisler, Ron Rhodes, Elliot Johnson, Ron Allen, Walt Baker, Ron Blue, just to name a few, not to mention mention our own Dr. Will Johnson and soon-to-be Dr. Paul Shockley. And by the way, I don't know if if you realize it or not, and I was not paid to say this, but but these two men are some of the most respected men in their fields, sitting right here every week amongst us. And we're privileged when they stand up before us and preach the Word of God to us. Will is a scholar-scholar when it comes to the New Testament. Paul is a scholar-scholar when it comes to systematic theology in the field of defending the Christian faith. I don't just let anybody get up here and proclaim the Word to you. I'm very careful about who stands up in this pulpit. And the reason I'm careful is because I take my responsibilities as a pastor very seriously. And I take my responsibilities as a servant of the Lord very seriously as well. I love you. I love him, and I love you, and I want the very best for you. I want you to have solid, scholarly, biblical instruction. No, Lord willing, our problem will never be a lack of biblical instruction. But we must be ever vigilant... That we don't fall over into the second extreme. And that's biblical understanding without consistent, wise application of biblical principles to life's situations. While we don't want any part of the first extreme, I've got to tell you, I don't want any part of the second extreme either. I don't want, I don't want us to ever become a church of dead orthodoxy. A church that knows the right things that spends a lot of time studying the right things and then leaves it there. James is going to tell us that's just as wrong. In fact, he's going to say we delude ourselves if we think we're growing, and that's all we do. Yes, we need to learn. <laughs> Please don't ever mistake anything I say in the, in the study of James that we need to downgrade Bible teaching. That's, that's in, I insist on that. The Word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing even through the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints of the marrow. It's a critic of thoughts and intents of the heart. As Paul will say in his closing words, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. A study of the Word of God is essential, but James is going to tell us if we just study it and leave it at that, We haven't done very much. So this morning, I want to encourage us to avoid both extremes. We want to avoid both extremes. The maturing believer will both learn and apply. It shouldn't come down to either or. But this is one of those cases that it comes down to both and. And the reason that it's both and and not either or is we're not talking about things that are contradictory. In contradictory issues, you can't have both and. It's logically inconsistent, but if they're complementary, you can have both and, and that's what we want. We want to both study the Word and apply the Word on a consistent basis to life's circumstances. The overriding message of the book of James is that the mature believer will both know and consistently apply the Word of God in whatever situations we find ourselves. The mature believer will both know and consistently apply the word of God in whatever situation we find ourselves. This situation will occur in prosperity, and we're going to find in the very first chapter that this application will also apply in times of suffering. It will apply if you're financially rich. It will also, we'll find out in the book of James, apply to those who are economically poor. The book of James, as you probably know, is one of the more difficult books in the New Testament when it comes to interpretation. Martin Luther, the reformer, so misunderstood one section of the book of James that he calls it an epistle of straw. It's not an epistle of straw; it's an epistle of steel. But he misunderstood. He was he was a great expositor himself, and this is why I, I do it with fear and trembling. When I take issue with something like, with someone like Martin Luther, but here we have to. He was convinced that the teaching of James, particularly in chapter 2, contradicted the teachings of the Apostle Paul. And so, in his view, the book of James should be stricken from the record. It shouldn't be part of the canon of Scripture. And I understand why. If he truly believed, and, and if he happened to be right, it should be. But if he truly believed that James contradicted Paul, then of course it should be stricken. But with all due respect, this is one place where Brother Martin was mistaken. Others study the book of James and conclude that there's a separate and necessary, get those two terms, separate and necessary, condition for the receiving of eternal life that John doesn't mention in his gospel. They see James as teaching faith plus works. Faith plus works. This has, for many years, for centuries, been the view of the church at Rome. The view of the Eastern Orthodox Church, it's the, it's the view of the Mormon Church, it's the view of the Jehovah's Witnesses, faith plus works. They see Jane, you talk to them about faith alone in Christ alone, they immediately bring you to James chapter 2, say faith without works is dead. So what do you have to say about that? Well, we'll have a lot to say about it. It is a difficult interpretive book, but it is certainly understandable. You see, Luther understood it that way. He he understood that James was teaching faith plus works, and that's why he wanted it out. So in that sense, we have to appreciate him. But uh, the problem is some people have accepted faith plus works as true, and they've adopted that into their theology. Again, with all due respect, their hermeneutical method, their, their method of interpretation has failed them when they see faith plus works as the way to receive eternal life. No, James and Paul didn't contradict each other. James and John don't contradict each other. In fact, James, Paul, and John, all the writers of Scripture, were inspired by the Holy Spirit in such a way so that God's complete and coherent message to mankind was made available in the original languages. There are no contradictions with God. And there are no contradictions in his self-disclosure to mankind. That self-disclosure that you hold in written form In your laps this morning. I draw your attention now to the first verse of this letter where James begins. James, that's also the Hebrew term Jacob, uh, but we'll use the Greek rendering in our study here. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. The first question that we should address in the study of this epistle is, who is this particular James? There are five that are mentioned in the New Testament, but only two of the individuals are really serious candidates. One of the candidates for this particular James is James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, most likely the first cousin of Jesus Christ. We studied that in the in the Gospel of John. The other candidate is James, the half-brother of of our Lord, who is the leader at the church of Jerusalem. The introductory phrase reads here, James, a bondservant of God. That word is doulos. I don't know why we translate it bondservant I, uh, rather than slave. I think James and Paul and others who use that term probably would have preferred, had they known English, they probably would have preferred the word slave. But slave is such a it's such a negative word for all of us. Nobody wants to live in slavery. We had slavery in our country in the past, which was an embarrassment to us. We, we fight wars so that we don't end up as slaves. So I think that's why the translators of these texts cho- chose a little bit more of a vanilla word, bond servant. But if you prefer that, that's fine. James, a servant, some translations have. But James is calling himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, you know what? Slavery is not all that bad provided you have the right master. The problem with human masters is they are all fallible. They're all laden with sin, even the best. So even the best human master of a slave is going to treat that slave poorly at one time or another. But if Jesus Christ is your master, I have no problem at all being called his slave. So James doesn't either. James, a bond servant, or James, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem with that is it really doesn't help us to decide which James it was. Uh, we, we find actually very little in the first verse that's going to narrow it down. Because of the fact that James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, perhaps the first cousin of Jesus was executed with the sword, according to Acts chapter 12, verse 2, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread by order of Herod Agrippa, and that because that probably happened as early as 44 B.C. Remember the the crucifixion, either A.D. 30, 33, maybe as late as 36. So because James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, first cousin of Jesus, perhaps, because he was executed by Herod Agrippa in 44 B.C., A.D., A.D., James the Apostle is thought by most in New Testament scholarship not to be the author of this epistle. Uh, they believe that he was executed simply too early. If he was the author, and, and it's real difficult to get into iffy issues when it comes to biblical interpretation, but if he was the author, we would assume that he might have mentioned something about his apostolic credentials. Uh, the, the other apostles tend to throw that in there. You know, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, not by the will of man, but by the choice of God. You would think that he would have thrown something like that in, into it. And again, many believe that the epistle was probably written shortly after this James would have died. So, most in New Testament introductory studies believe That it was James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, who actually was the human author of this letter. I hope all of you realize when we talk about authorship that we're speaking of human authorship. We believe that the Holy Spirit is the divine author of every book of the Bible, of every word in the Bible. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal means the inspiration comes down to the very words. Plenary means all the words are inspired. That's a, a Reader's Digest version of Verbal Plenary Inspiration, but that, that should help you this morning. We believe in that. And so we believe that the Holy Spirit is the big A author of every book of Scripture. So when we talk about authorship here and in any of our other studies, we're talking about the little A author, the human author, that took God's, uh, had God's words revealed to him and put God's complete and coherent message down in writing without waiving any of his own personality, his own writing style, his own vocabulary, his own intelligence, and then made that message available to us. God in grace did that for us. So we believe that James, and I'm going to teach this epistle with the understanding that James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the one who's the human author of the letter. James, this James, became the leader of the mother church in Jerusalem after the departure of Peter. We we see that in Acts chapter 12, verse 17. This particular James was the leading spokesman at the, at the Jerusalem council. We see that in Acts chapter 15. And he was a pillar of the church to whom Paul reported his missionary experience. Paul relates that in Galatians chapter 2 and Acts chapter 21. So this James rapidly assumes a position of prominence in the early church. Interesting enough, though, if you remember back in your church, early church history, this particular James, James, Jesus' half-brother, wasn't a believer until after the resurrection. In fact, this particular James is probably one of the brothers that mocked his older brother about why he wasn't going up to the feast. You know, everybody else that's important goes up there. You're, you're supposed to be the big shot. Why don't you go up there? And Jesus says, y'all go on ahead. I'll catch you later. He ends up going up. But this James doesn't become a believer until after the crucifixion and resurrection. And sometime after that, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, sometime, it's not specific, Jesus appeared in resurrection body to his younger brother. This James grew up with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He played with Jesus. He worked with Jesus. In spite of that, He didn't become a believer in Jesus. He didn't place his faith and his faith alone in him for salvation until after the resurrection. It's tough to be a prophet in your own hometown, and especially, apparently, in your own household. Think about this. Not only was Jesus his older brother, but who was his mother? Mary. (laughs) Who was his dad? Joseph. Those are three pretty good uh, witnesses. To the truth of Jesus' Messiahship but it doesn't look like he became a believer until afterwards now I think if I was this James I probably would have put something like James the half brother of Jesus who used to play with him I grew up with him I walked to work with him every day I'm writing you this but he doesn't do that you know there is a certain humility that comes upon us after we've been embarrassed by failure isn't there There's a certain humility that the Apostle Paul had because he knew how badly he had failed in the early part of his life and how wrong he was. Don't you see a certain humility in the Apostle Peter? I do. Whenever I see him write something, I see humility dripping from the words. Why? Because he had had a rather public failure. Now, how'd you like to be James, being the leader of the church at Jerusalem, and people say, I heard that you didn't even trust your brother, (laughs) and you grew up with him. That had to be a a source of humiliation for him. He doesn't start that letter mentioning that at all. This letter, he says, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, using his full title. James's reputation for personal piety and humility were well known by those of his day. Actually, people, contemporaries of his, people who wrote perhaps within 100 years of his death, wrote of it themselves. And while some of what they wrote and comes down to us today, while some of it probably smacks of legend, like the stories about him being called Old Camel Knees, where he would be in the temple praying so long and so hard that his knees became callous like those of a camel. I don't know that that's. I don't know that. I wouldn't swear to that one. It does sound a little bit like legend, and it's not. It's not scripture, so we have no problem saying that may or may not be true. Whether that's true or not, whether he was called old camel knees, and whether he did spend so much time in the temple praying that his knees developed calluses that were an inch or so thick, we do know this. We do know that history records that James was a man of integrity and humility. We do know that. So when he begins James, a servant or a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't. Surprises Now, to whom is this book being written? Well, before I tell you the original audience, let me tell you the secondary audience. That's you, and that's me. This is part of the canon of scripture. So even though we're going to have a very specific original audience, and we need to understand that original audience so that we'll understand some of the things that James is doing here. But this is a book that's written to you. It's written to believers. We're going to see that all through this book. And in order to properly understand it, This is one of the key things. I'll say it today, but believe me, I'll say it more than once. James is written to believers. John, on on the one hand, we just got through studying. It's no accident we're studying these books back to back. John is the only book in the Bible that has, as its expressed purpose in the text, the evangelization of the unbeliever. So it's written first to the unbeliever, secondarily to the believer. And hopefully you saw we could get a lot out of John as a believer, a tremendous amount But it has, as its stated purpose, the evangelization of the unbeliever. That's not the case with James. Please remember that. Please remember that, especially by the time we get to chapter 2. It'll it'll help you. It's one of the things I think, and I say this with respect, it's one of the things that I believe Martin Luther missed. He missed what was going on in James chapter 2 because he missed who the original audience was. The original audience is believers. James does what is customary in a letter, in an epistle of his day. That's all an epistle means, that it's a letter. We call it a book, but most, most, more accurately, we should call this the epistle of James. What James does is first tell who's writing it, and then who's the recipient. That's not exactly how we do it in most of our letters today. Some business letters are moving in this direction, especially if uh, letters that go through email are moving in this direction. But back in ancient times, it would say, from Bruce to John. Today, we would say, Dear John, we would have the body of the letter, and then we would say, Sincerely, or Signed, Bruce. But here, they gave the name of the one who was the author first, and then the recipient second. So he's following a a common form of address for letters of his day, James, and he explains who he is, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, and then he says, Greetings. So he follows the typical pattern for his day. The twelve tribes which are dispersed abroad. Following the stoning of Stephen, a wider persecution broke out in the church, in the early church in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 relates On on that day, a great persecution, the day is the day of Stephen's stoning, on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they, the believers, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. It, It does look like the apostles stayed themselves in Jerusalem. But many, many, many of the believers had to flee. It's not until Acts chapter 11 that we see how far they went. First it was Judea and Samaria, but then we find out they didn't stay there. They went further away, as far away as Cyprus, the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean. Antioch, up, in, up near Syria, up near Tarsus, where Paul was from. And then even to North Africa. So as a result of the persecution that followed the stoning of Stephen, the church was, was jettisoned from its comfort zone. We all have a comfort zone, don't we? And most of us don't like to get pushed out of it. Well, God had a plan that didn't involve the Jewish believers staying in Jerusalem for the rest of their life. His plan involved taking the gospel not only to Jerusalem, but to Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, if they stayed in Jerusalem the whole time, that plan's not going to get... Accomplished, And so what Jesus does is he allows his church to undergo persecution so they would move out. And that's exactly what they did. And this is part of the story of the book of Acts is how all that plays out. We're studying that on Wednesday night. If you'd like to come by, it's a great study. You'll see just exactly how Jesus Christ worked it all out. And one of the ways he did it was he allowed persecution. And they left and went a long way away. So the original, the original recipients of these letters are this letter were the Jewish Christians, the Jewish folks who had become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who were living outside of Jerusalem, having been scattered by persecution. That's important to remember, too, because we would get into our lesson next week, James is going to speak about suffering. And some of the things he's going to say are going to make you scratch your head. And you're going to say, that's easy for him to say, because he's not in the situation that I'm in. Count it all joy. Are you out of your mind? Count it all joy. You don't know what's been happening to me. Well, I want to tell you right now, the people that he had written to had been scattered away from their homes by persecution. They knew something about suffering. They knew what it was like to lose their job. To have to move to another city where they knew nobody. to have To, to have to, in an agricultural economy where land was owned. To have to go in a place where you don't own any land and you might not be able to buy any land. Where you're a foreigner. Yes, they knew something about suffering. So when we When we get to chapter 1, verses 2 through following, and he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various kinds of trials. These are people who were in the middle of various kinds of trials themselves. It wasn't theoretical. I'm just like you. I don't care to read books or hear testimonies that are talking strictly theoretically. It's often difficult to hear that. You know, somebody tells you how to make money, you want to know how much money they've made. Well, I hadn't made any, but I'm making a lot off this book. You know, sometimes these seminars, the the people, the, the way that they get to be a millionaire in whatever field it is, I won't mention any particular one, is by doing the seminar, not by selling the particular product that they're out there with. Well, these people were not going through theoretical suffering. They knew what suffering was about, and he's going to encourage them in the middle of his suffering. Now, another question we have to answer in our introduction this morning, in the last few minutes that we have left, we need to at least consider for a moment as to when this epistle was written. Because there is some dispute about the date of writing, as it seems to be most of the books of the New Testament. There are a few we can pin down fairly closely, but this, this there is some dispute in the literature about the, the date of the writing. One thing that does seem to be fairly universally agreed to is that it was most likely written early. It was most likely written early. In fact, I would go so far to say is that this was the earliest book. This, this is the earliest letter that was written in the New Testament. It's not first. We, we, sometimes we think Matthew must have been written first because it goes with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's not the case. Uh, James, it appears as though James was written extremely early. Some, like Professor Jane Hodges, would think that James is written as early as the mid-30s. Now, if you were to take the crucifixion in either 30 or 33, uh, Professor Hodges, in his very fine commentary, believes that that James was maybe written by 35 or 36, just a couple of years after the crucifixion. And he does make a a pretty good case for it. But the majority in New Testament scholarship believe that this book was most likely written in the early to mid-40s. But still, if you consider that date, we're talking about a date that's within 10 years, Ten years or so of the crucifixion. Within just a few years of the time that these the son of Stephen and the, these believers would have been scattered into what uh, Acts chapter one verse eight would have referred to as the uttermost parts of the earth. So I believe, and we're going to we're going to study this book with the understanding that James was was probably written in the mid 40s, perhaps maybe even as early as the mid to late 30s. Whatever the case. It was the first book written in the New Testament canon, probably out uh, dating, in terms of uh, being early, Paul's letter to the Galatians. That's one of those letters that we can date with some fairly serious accuracy. Paul writes Galatians in 49 A.D. James writes probably no later than 45. So James has Paul beat by at least four years. That's not just dry academic material. It's going to matter, and I'll tell you why. In just a second, if you can hang in there with me. There's a reason why the the dating of the book of James is important. i tell you what, I'll tell you now. I won't wait till later because I see that some of you are on the edge of your seat. I don't know if it's your face to fall asleep or if it's that you just can't wait to see why the date is so important. Here, let me tell you why. Some people will say that James is writing his epistle to correct a faulty understanding of what Paul wrote in both Galatians and in the book of Romans. In other words, in Galatians and Romans, Paul stresses that justification is by faith. By faith alone in the proper object, Jesus Christ. And they'll say, the reason James is written is James understands that people are going to misunderstand Paul. And they're going to say, well, this, uh, this just faith. Well, Paul never meant that. Paul never meant that it was just only faith. Of course he meant that justification had to be by works as well. So James writes in order to correct Paul. Now, first of all, if you believe in inerrancy like I do, and inspiration like I do, that's silliness to begin with. But let's just say we don't. We do. We do, for the record. But let's just assume, for the sake of argument, that we didn't. It's going to be pretty difficult for James to be correcting Paul when James wrote first. By quite a bit. At least he wrote first by four years when it came to the Galatians text, and by perhaps 11 years, maybe 12 years, when it comes to the writing of Romans. No, if anybody's writing to correct anybody, it's Paul's writing to correct James, but we don't believe that. James didn't make a mistake. We make a mistake when we misunderstand James. But James didn't make a mistake, and Paul wasn't writing to correct James, and James is not writing to correct Paul. So we can dispense with that. That's why I had to tell you when it was written. It's important for us to know that it's written early. Now, why would we think it's written early? If we don't have, it's not dated, it doesn't say, you know, April 14th, A.D. 45, from James to the church, to the, to the believers that are scattered abroad. Why would we think, perhaps, why do New Testament scholars believe that it was written early? Well, one of the things is, there's absolutely no mention of the Gentiles at all. No mention of the Gentiles coming, coming to Christ as equal participants in the body of Christ. There's not a mention of that at all. Now, in the book of Acts, it's a huge subject, is it not? In the book of Ephesians... Incredibly big subject, that the Gentiles have been included into the body of Christ as equal participants, as equal brothers. There are no second-class citizens. There are no little people in Christianity. And remember when Peter goes to the home of Cornelius to bring the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time, at least the first time officially in the book of Acts. You remember what the response of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem was? Well, it was negative. after being told that all these people came to Christ, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had a negative response. It wasn't, oh, I'm so glad they came to Christ. It was, you ate with a bunch of Gentiles? You had dinner with them? How could you? And so Peter has to explain that this wasn't his idea. It came from the Holy Spirit himself. The Spirit had led him there. So there's nothing about that in this letter at all. In fact, this is a very, very Jewish letter. If I could put it another way, it has a very Jewish flavor to it. It's a very early letter in that sense. Another thing that we don't see in this letter, we we see very little, if any, mention of church structure. The the whole structure of the church developed as time went on. Paul was the one who not only expressed the majority of the mystery doctrines, and by the way, the, the primary mystery was that the Gentiles would be included in to the body of Christ as equal participants. That's the basis of the mystery. But Paul was also the one that gave the church... That was privileged by the Holy Spirit to give the church some information about how the church should be run and structure, and we don't have any of that in this letter. the The, the term elder is used once, but it, it's used in a very primitive sense. We have the word teacher used, but it's also used in its more primitive sense in chapter three there as well. So we have no mention of the church in terms of any structure whatsoever, and we have no mention of the Gentiles being included. And the Gentiles were included fairly early, by the mid-40s, so we have to assume, since none of that is even hinted at, that James is writing to people who are Jewish believers alone, and he's writing fairly early. What we see in the book of James is the church in its infancy. We see the church in its infancy. So it has a very Jewish flavor. We'll consider the whole concept of dating more uh, we'll revisit that, rather, when we get to James chapter 2, and it'll become very important there. James wrote before Paul. That's what I want you to remember from today. James wrote before Paul. <clears throat> Finally, the verse ends with the term, greetings. This, this term that, that James used, that the other writers of scriptures used, is very closely related to a, a Greek word for grace. What Christians did back then is what we kind of do sometimes today is is they adopted a a a secular word and put a little bit of a religious slant on it i 'm using the term religion in a good way there a, a, a little bit of a christian's slant on it you know like there there's a symbol of a fish the earliest Christian symbol actually was a symbol of an anchor well they took they took an anchor a well known uh, well known uh, uh, Visual experience, especially in that kind of economy, and then they use that as a visual reference to the church. The fish came slightly after that. Well, what they do here, if you were if you were to walk up to somebody in ancient Antioch or ancient Athens and you wanted to say hello to them, you would say Pilo, kyri. Well, here they, they they take, and you may you may can even hear it. The word for grace is k- kalis, kalis. So it's very similar to kaire. And what happens here is James takes a secular greeting and gives it just a little bit of a spiritual slant to it, and that's uh, very common amongst gospel writers. A careful, (coughs) thoughtful study of the epistle of James will give you a fresh perspective on the Christian experience. As Paul wrote later on in his life, the goal of our instruction is, is love. Love is the ultimate application of all the truth that is presented in the Word of God. Love is the ultimate application of all the truth presented in the Word of God. One time, somebody called us the Love Church, thinking that I would be insulted by that. I'm not the least bit insulted by that. Uh, they said I was the Love Pastor. Thinking that I might take exception to that, why would I take exception to that? T- tell me I-, I assume that that was somebody perhaps that might have been speaking at least at that point in their life, and I hope they've changed their view from from the from the second extreme that we were talking about. If love is the ultimate application of everything we know, why wouldn't we want to love? Now it needs to be genuine love, not phony love. everybody's seen too much of that, but but love is the ultimate application. Paul and James don't contradict each other. Actually, they have exactly the same message. It's that You, you can't just learn it. You've got to learn it and do it. And the ultimate in doing is loving. I've said it before, and I'll end this introduction this way this morning. If after being at Pine Valley for a reasonable period of time, now you've got to decide what that is between you and God. If after being at Pine Valley and listening to me teach, listening to Paul teach and Will and some of the other people that I've had stand in this pulpit, if after a certain reasonable period of time you don't find yourself loving God more, and then as a result loving your fellow believer more, then with all due respect, you're probably in the wrong place. And life is too short. I'd love to have you here. I want to have you here. But if you're not learning to love more, if you're not learning more about God and loving him more as a result of that, and then the more you love God loving your fellow believer, then I'm doing something wrong. We can still be friends, but I would advise you to seek out some place where you can not just learn, but also love as well. We stand here unapologetically, unapologetically for biblical orthodoxy. Regular study of the word of God is indispensable to spiritual growth. But let us not pull up short of the mark. Ravi Zecharias once remarked, Truth without the undergirding of love makes the possessor of that truth obnoxious and the truth possessed repugnant. James will put it this way, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers, watch, who delude themselves. So where should we be with regard to the two extremes that I mentioned in the beginning? Are we to attempt to live righteously apart from the study of the word of God? Absolutely not. Are we to faithfully learn the word of God without an emphasis... On the application of biblical truth to life's circumstances? Absolutely not. If we're to glorify God with our lives on this earth, after salvation, we must be diligent to both learn the word of God and to practice what we've learned. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the challenge that's before us. In this letter from James, written so long ago to a Jewish audience in the beginning, but certainly has incredible application to us today. Father, we thank you that we were saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, with with no works added to that on our part. We thank you that Jesus Christ did all the work for us, and that we can never begin to repay him. We thank you for that. On bended knee, we thank you. At the same time, Father, we, we ask you through your Holy Spirit who indwells each one of us. We ask you that through your Holy Spirit that he would encourage us, strengthen us, and motivate us on a daily basis. Not only to learn, but to do it. To be ambassadors for our Lord Jesus Christ. To represent him with such love. that 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 love itself can be something that would be used by your Holy Spirit to bring others to Christ. Father, help us with this challenge, both today and in the days to come, and we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.